Hello and welcome to this episode of Radio Free HPC. This is where we talk about supercomputing, high-performance computing, and other technology topics. I'm Dan Olds, joined as always by my co-host Henry Newman from Seagate Government Solutions and Shaheen Khan from Orion X. Now let's get to the show. Hello and welcome to another scintillating edition of Radio Free HPC. I'm Dan Olds, as always. Yes, I'm always Dan Olds. And with me is Henry S. Newman. How you doing, Henry? I am good, Dan. And you? I'm good. No Shaheen today. He is on the road. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm familiar with the concept of on the road. You have been on the road a lot. In fact, I think you travel more than any of us put together. Yeah, probably not. But, you know, you went to Australia. And actually, another installment of your trip in Australia, this one, in my opinion, is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I think this is great. And it's the first presentation like this I've seen. And uh, just to set the stage, I was at the HPC Advisory Council Perth meeting, and uh, there were some fantastic presentations. We talked about one last week from Down Under Geophysics, who does probably the most efficient private data centers in the world. And this week, we're going to see a presentation or talk about a presentation from Tricia Ball, and she's entitled it Observations on Benchmarks and HPC Procurement Tenders. And she's a longtime Cray employee and is talking to the crowd about uh, do's and don'ts in RFPs and benchmarks and all that kind of stuff. And this is something very familiar to you, Henry. I'm familiar with the concept uh, in a previous life when I was much younger, Dan. You actually self-describe yourself as a slimy benchmarker. Oh, I reformed. Reformed. Okay, reformed slimy benchmarker. And actually for the same company, right? No, I was Cray Research. Ah, okay. So Tricia had joined Terra as a graduate student in Seattle. And then that became Cray, et cetera, et cetera. And um, what do you want to do, Henry? You want to just kind of run through this? Yeah, I think we should. I think there's some important things for people, especially people who write procurements to understand what the role that they need to take to get what they want. Yeah. Because that's a critical. Yeah, and that's what she emphasized again and again. And by the way, we'll put a link to the video of her presentation with the description of this episode. And so she starts out with writing RFPs is very challenging, which is absolutely true. It's gotten more challenging given the complexity of architecture. Yes. She makes the points to make sure the document is clear and unambiguous, which is difficult from the start. And make sure you allow vendors time to ask questions and make sure all the questions and responses are shared. I agree with that completely. But at the same time, allow vendor-specific queries to be kept confidential. I agree. Or else they won't ask. I agree with that. And beware the law of unintended consequences, she says here. Requirement for more performance than the budget allows can lead to trouble if vendors bid what you don't actually want. And I would add something that I've seen a number of times along that is make sure you understand everything in the budget. Sometimes you're writing RFP, well, the system costs this much as how many CPUs we need, and they forget about interconnect, or they forget about storage, or they forget about login nodes, or they forget about security monitoring nodes, and things like that. They do? That actually happens? Oh, yes, Dan. 
Okay. Not explicitly, but implicitly. So they don't call it out specifically, so the vendor doesn't put it in. Uh, Sometimes I've seen that, or I've seen a number of cases where, and this is very recent benchmarks, where because of what they're asking for, vendors bid old hardware because they're not asking for latest and greatest given their specifications. Uh, They specify something, maybe a storage system, and and calculate, well, we need this many megabytes of disk bandwidth per node or per this much memory, and the vendor can accomplish that with maybe six or four or six terabyte drives instead of getting 16 terabyte drives. Ah, okay, okay. So make sure you're very specific and explicit on what you want and what you need. Yes. And she puts up some observations in here that commercial RFPs typically include benchmarks that are reflective of the workload because their workloads are better defined, but it's a more difficult job to do in a multi-purpose, general purpose HPC shop. Yeah, I think that's true, Dan. Yeah. And she points out kind of some common things here, that if the workload is known to be memory bandwidth limited, then ask for stream and don't include something like spec. Right. One of the comments I'd make if you're writing it, Please don't make the vendors do more work than they have to to meet what goals you're trying to accomplish just because you want to see how fast something goes and it has no impact on or relationship to your workload. Yes. And she points out that if you, you know you size a system using Linpack, you're going to get bids for systems of very similar sizes that run Linpack well. And don't do I.O. well. Yes, yes. And don't do communications well. Yeah. If you choose a processor based on spec, you're going to get a higher core count processor rather than the one that's best for your apps. Right. Yeah. And this should surprise people how? Yeah, totally agree. But it's kind of human nature that I know when I put together a computer, I run a suite of benchmarks that have nothing to do with what I actually do on the system just to sort of see how big and how fast it is. Well, Dan, you're benchmarking a system, but you're not going out to ask someone to spend money with time, power, people, and other things to do it. Precisely. It's completely different. And one of the things that I've tried to do when I've gone to the other side and written specifications for the government, helped write specifications for the government, I should say, Mm -hmm. and for others, is I'm mindful of the time that it takes and the cost associated with that time to run benchmarks and the resources and skill sets necessary. So benchmarking is not cheap. No, no, it's not. And she makes that point again and again that it's not cheap, it's not easy. And what the vendors need to understand, it's important to let them know how highly the benchmarks are weighted in the overall scoring and how they're weighted in the overall scoring. Because that should be weighted in terms of how much you need a particular system characteristic. Right. So, for instance, Stream might have a weighting of so much. HPL might have a weighting of, you know, so much minus, etc. If that makes any sense. It does make sense to me. And the evaluation metrics for the benchmarks have to be known. And she puts a number of different ways to look. Actually, in government, shall be known. <laughs> shall be known. But I think it's more important for the customers to understand this themselves before they put out the RFP. Oh. Intimately. That's part of the problem is people don't know what to weight things because... And this goes back to a really good comment is the future is seldom the same as the past from Seymour Cray in the presentation that you showed me. Mm -hmm. And how do you know what your workload of the future is going to be given your business? Yeah. 
you think you know what it is, but you're not sure you know what it is. So this waiting stuff, though, you might want to wait it at the end or afterwards because you have more information. It's really important the vendors to know up front so they know how much resources to put into each benchmark. Yeah. Yeah. And to give them an idea of where you think your workloads are going. Yes. And make the change after you've done the evaluation. Yes. The waiting change. Yes. She goes through some ways to individually evaluate benchmarks that each benchmark can be scored in isolation and performance required to be replicated at acceptance. And that's a really good idea. Right. Another example she put up is in the proposed system, how many nodes are required to run 10 benchmark 1, 16 copies of benchmark 2, 30 copies of benchmark 6, etc., etc., etc. Correct. And that's also a good way to do it. Part of it, I understand what people are trying to do. They're trying to test the network and test the communications network Mm -hmm. in terms of its topology, of how the vendors configured it for collisions and things like that. Test the scheduler and how efficient it is. But the more complex you make it, the more difficult you make it for the vendor and the more cost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially if you require them to benchmark a fully sized, fully scaled system. And in some cases, that becomes intractable for some vendors, just given what they have on the floor at the time and the cost of keeping that machine active. She also gives an example of testing for sustained system performance. And that's kind of interesting. Five benchmarks, sustained system performance per core, of all five and then taken to the fifth power, which is interesting calculation. And that would be a geometric mean, as they call it. And then you can also add weightings to that as well. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't seen that before. I have seen it, but not often. And the interesting point she makes here is one that I think every full-on procurement runs into is how do you project what future hardware that isn't here today, how that hardware is going to perform? And that is as much of a science as it is an art, Dan. And from what I've seen, there's groups of people that have been trying to do this for years to some success. But a lot of what I've seen is sometimes all this stuff is you run this one data case in your code and then users find something different or change their data cases, change the number of degrees of freedom and the whole problem domain changes. So doing prediction if you don't know what your future workload is, because maybe you're taking a different path in the code and emphasizing different things, is very difficult. Well, that's absolutely true. The point I think she's hitting on this slide is for hardware you don't know that isn't available yet and projecting that. But I'm saying there are two variables, Dan. Yes. You might oh, yeah. That. There's the hardware and then there's and the, the workload. workload. And you combine the two. Very difficult. Oh, it's impossible. And I I can see that what that will lead to is you're going to get either nearly identical results submitted by the vendors or wildly different results. (laughs) Um, Well, part of what I've seen is when they finally get the machine with the, the hardware that's not predicted, the workload, it might be the same codes, but they've increased the mesh size or they've changed the number of degrees of freedom or they increase the number of time steps or something changes or a number of things change in the code that they couldn't predict. Yeah. And everything goes kerfooly. And that brings you to the point of how much optimization do you allow the vendors to do in your RFP? Some RFPs don't allow it at all. Really? Yeah. According to her, she sees RFPs that don't allow for vendors to optimize, but she recommends that you allow optimization with guidelines. 
like you specify types of optimizations allowed, like for I.O., OpenMP, etc., specify that the scientific validity of the results doesn't change, which I think is very important, and you don't allow optimizations that are specific to the benchmark itself, the benchmark problem itself. And of course, the vendor has to give you details of all optimizations made. Does that make sense to you? It makes total sense. And I always ask, besides the why, how is this going to impact future architectures? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with legacy applications, she points out, they just don't scale efficiently without being adapted to the current hardware, actually the future hardware that you're installing. So you've got to allow the vendors to be able to modify those apps as long as the validity of the results don't change in order to run on future hardware. Yeah, and there's some things, well, they might not change now, but they could change in the future. I've seen that with one specific code that uh, where the response is when you ask about the change, well, weather is chaotic <laughs> when things change. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's not as simple and it's not black and white, Dan. No. The thing that I really agree with that she says here is allowing optimizations lets you evaluate the skills of the vendor in your application domain. And especially if you're going to be a kind of a partner with them down the road for years on this machine. I agree. Yeah. We can't hear you nod, Henry. Oh, you... Henry was nodding on the camera. <laughs> yeah, we can't hear that. <laughs> you can't hear me nod? So she kind of ends up with some do's and some don'ts. First, figure out what you want. You want the fastest running job, no matter how many nodes it takes, or do you want the maximum number of jobs on the system, for example? and make the benchmark instructions clear. Yeah, that's a key, key point. Make the benchmark instructions clear. It's really hard to do that sometimes. Yes, and supply validation requirements and make sure they are also clear. And make sure you run your validation requirements on multiple machines and architectures. And like she says, and this is interesting, she says watch the run length, a good benchmark, does not run for more than an hour. That would be a great world to live in. That would be a great world to live in. I'm not so sure I agree with that because in some cases, there's IO and data cases you need to be worried about. I would think like a wharf benchmark would take longer than an hour of any size to run. No? No. There are benchmarks that take longer than an hour because you've got pre and post processing and other things and they're different impacts on the system. Okay. You have the initial setup, you have the initial conditions generation, you have the benchmark, and then you have post-processing. So I can see where that would be nice to have, but you can't always have that. Yeah. And she talks about a benchmark, just parenthetically, the GPC net benchmark. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. But one other point on the benchmarks an hour. Oh, yeah. Sometimes you want to look at scalability. So you might be running them on 256 nodes and then 512 nodes and then 1024 to look at scalability on the cores within those nodes so again some of the smaller cases could easily go over an hour yeah but we ought to take a look at this gpc net and maybe talk about it a couple of shows from now because it's uh, according to her great measure of the ability of the system to handle congestion network congestion interesting on the don't side don't expect output to be bit identical to that from another system which is true that's just not going to happen well even if it is the same cpu when you're doing an all reduce things can be added up in different orders yeah especially when you have different numbers of nodes from using different compilers different vendors different everything and how much precision do you need in your benchmark results 
if you need three digits, significant digits, don't ask for 14 digits of accuracy. I'm, I'm with that. And determine what a scientifically valid result is and ask for that. And if the runs, identical runs, must give identical input, let the vendor know. And if the runs must give identical output across all rank and thread counts, let them know that too. Totally agree. All good stuff. Yep. And don't require huge amounts of binary output data to be returned. Are you really going to look at all of it? <laughs> and oftentimes the customers don't. And large data returns can add up to a week to write a drive, then ship it. So if you don't need it all, if you're not going to look at it all, don't do it. Other don'ts, don't add too many requirements that restrict how benchmarks can be run. Like don't specify the number of MPI ranks over MPI threads to be used. Agree. Which I think makes a lot of sense. And don't assume anything about numbers of CPUs, cores, or accelerators per node unless they're mandatory, because this often occurs when you're focusing too much on the system you already have. So good stuff here. The big don't that she ended up with, don't release an RFP in December and ask for a response in January. It always happens, Dan. <laughs> Dan, you have no idea. RFPs released on December 15th. Benchmark responses due January, <laughs> January 15th. 15th. <laughs> yeah, that ha you have no idea how often that happens. That is brutal. It is brutal. That is brutal. It's mean. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's them finishing up their stuff before the holiday break yeah. and throwing that across the table, across the transom to the vendors. Yep. Yeah. She also has some things in here about acceptance considerations and criteria it's a great presentation she does a great job with it so please take a look at that there's a link in the post of this episode so henry it's that time again henry newman's and i'm thinking of a new title for this I like the title of Henry Newman's Why No One Should Ever Be Online Ever. <laughs> Dan, it's been a week with a target-rich environment. So, But I think the best one... What's out there? What's happening now? The best one I found this week is just because it impacts so many people is the Google bug with the Google Calendar bug where people can take over from a malicious email within the Google system and take over your system. And it affects... A mere 1.5 billion people who use really? Google Mail and Google Calendar. Mirror. A mirror. So think about the population of the Earth. I think it's like 8 billion now. Uh-huh. Is that correct? 7, 8, something like something that. Something like that. 1.5. in the neighborhood. So that's, you know, it's like close to 20% of the population of the planet Earth. Well, think about the number of people that are online, which is probably half that number. 25% of those with this one bug. It's a big number. Yeah. It's a significant bug. Yeah. Google's going to be fixing it, which is good. So, but this thing's been around since 2007 was first reported. It was a good article in Forbes that went through the history of it by the person who initially reported it. We'll put a link in for that. Yeah. So let me just get you right on this bug. This is something that's Gmail-based? Google Calendar and Gmail, yes. Oh, Google Calendar and... Okay. Okay. And they can go ahead and just take over your whole system. Yeah. Okay. So let me just give you a professional tip out there. Don't go ahead and just click on calendar invitations from people you don't know who you don't have meetings scheduled with, right? That's probably a good pro probably tip. Probably a good pro tip, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So another glimpse into the abyss from Henry Newman. Nicely done. Thank you. So what about a catch of the week? 
I have a catch of the week. Of course you do. Excellent. Have we heard the sound yet, though? We're hearing it right now. I hear it. Good, good. All right. So my catch of the week, I actually didn't know about this. This is a great article in Wired that I saw about the fact that Wi-Fi as we know it almost did not happen. I've sent you the link, Dan. Yeah. And there was something that was backed by IBM and HP and Intel and Compaq called Home RF. And I don't ever remember that. No, I don't remember it either. Home RF. And this week is the 20th anniversary, and that's hard to believe, of Wi-Fi standard and an announcement. And they had, according to this, we had 20 years ago on September 15th, Christine Aguilera, the wireless genie out of the bottle, in the Atlanta Convention Center with 60 people in the crowd. <laughs> it's a great article, and it, it's interesting how the horse race and how it happened. So I encourage everybody to read it. It's actually really interesting. And it's hard to believe it's happened in Wi-Fi in the last 20 years. It's amazing. Oh, it's incredible. Incredible. The speed increases is just incredible. Yes. I mean, I still can't believe that there's some Wi-Fi that's faster than my home network. Yes. Ethernet. Yeah, it's hard to believe. I'm still not sure I believe it. And well, I, my Wi-Fi at home, using speed tests with Comcast, upload-download versus directly plugging in the cable modem, I cannot tell the difference. Wow. At over 280 megabits a second. That's pretty good. Yeah. That is pretty sporty. Yeah. It does remind me a little bit of when I moved from Sun Microsystems to IBM back around 98, and my manager hands me a laptop, which is cool. I knew a laptop, knew how to work it. And then he hands me this thing with this Ethernet on one side and this weird dongle on the other. I'm going, what the hell is this? He goes, this is token ring. This is a coming thing. You're going to need this to communicate pretty much everywhere. <laughs> I said, I have never seen anything that looks like this before in my life. It's big four-sided, strange yeah, no one can block see your of hands. plastic and metal. Yeah, yeah, no, but I'm making the shape of the token ring <laughs> thing. And I'm like, boy, this is new for me. Wonder if I'll ever use it. Only place I used it was their office. <laughs> Every place else, Ethernet cable or Wi-Fi. Yeah. Well, re yep. hey, remember from the early 90s, Fiddy was supposed to take over everything. That's true, too. Yes. And think about how home networking has come along. I know that you, for your new Castle Del Henry <laughs> that uh, you're building, are looking at going 10 gig E, right? To certain parts of the house that need that kind of performance, yes. I think that's great. Yep. I bow down before you on that. Yep. And you've got me looking along with the same thing, but I've got stuff that won't speak 10 gig E, but I want it anyway. <laughs> well... Like, Christmas is like my Naz won't Christmas do it. is coming, Dan. Well, yeah. All right. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and call this an episode of Radio Free HPC. Shaheen, we miss you wherever you are in the wilds of New York City, but we will catch up with all three of us sometime soon and talk to you later. Thanks for listening. Boom. And there you go. Thank you for listening to this episode of Radio Free HPC. And as a quick note, the views and opinions of Henry Newman are his and do not reflect any policy or position of Seagate Government Solutions or Seagate Technology. Thank you for listening. <laughs>